So as uh, you've been told now, the theme for this retreat talks will be the seven factors of awakening. And here on our first evening of the full day of the retreat, uh, my task is to uh, bring to you the factor of mindfulness, the first factor. And I don't know if I can do it in a way that I would like it to be done, this talk, but uh, in a way I'd like this talk to be a little bit more of a guided meditation than a talk, or a little bit more evocative than it is information, rather than just telling you something. And so maybe that depends a little bit on how you listen to it, Maybe you listen one way if you listen to it as information and if you listen or instructions, you listen to it another way if you are receiving and checking in with yourself, staying close in touch with yourself and seeing what the different things I say, what it touches, what it opens, what it, what responds inside of you to it. So um, I'd like to begin with uh, a story, a true story. In 1954, in Bangkok, they were going to move a nine-foot-tall Buddha, seated Buddha, a quite big statue, move it from uh, where it was kind of outdoors with a simple tin roof over it into a larger, nicer temple that they had built for it. And it was quite heavy, this plaster Buddha, kind of clay plaster Buddha, and they were lifting it up with some kind of crane or something, and um, or hoisting it up. And one of the ropes broke, and the Buddha crashed to the ground. And when it broke, crashed to the ground, some of the plaster cracked enough that they saw underneath the plaster was gold. And so they carefully removed the plaster and discovered this nine-foot-tall Buddha statue was made out of gold. And no one in living, you know, at the time knew that was the case. And um, according to Wikipedia, (laughs) the amount of gold in the statue in current, the current price of gold is $250 million. So that's a lot of gold in this nine foot gold statue. Uh, the story of the statue that is that came forth that was kind of unraveled was that what they think happened. It was built in something like the 13th, 14th century in Thailand, and it was uh, moved and placed in a, the capital of old Thailand, Ayutthaya, which uh, when the Burmese were going to come into Thailand and to, in their fight against the Thais, they kind of conquered part of Thailand and came and destroyed much of that capital. Uh, in order to protect this Buddha, they covered it with plaster. And, uh, and so, they, in fact, the, the Burmese came in and um, they destroyed all kinds of things. And for a long time, this Buddha just was somehow survived and just was left there, maybe the, and just left there. And, and uh, then sometime in the, a hundred years later, it was moved to Bangkok <clears throat> and moved a few times, but <clears throat> everyone thought it was this big, beautiful, plaster Buddha that had plaster and <clears throat> glass embedded in the plaster and quite something. But in fact, <clears throat> it was solid gold. And this is a wonderful 
you know, parable or story for our own lives <clears throat> that uh, all too easily we're plastered over. <clears throat> and uh, inside of us, there's a gold. Probably worth more than that gold Buddha, I'm sure. There's gold in us. And we're here not to make something happen, but rather to discover, to wake up to the gold <clears throat> that we have, the wonderfulness in ourselves. A wonderfulness which I'm sure that some of you uh, don't believe you have. They don't live that way as you maybe even assume the opposite. That rather than wonderfulness, there's, I don't know, what's the opposite of wonderfulness? Badness or unwonderfulness, <laughs> whatever. But in fact, a big part of this practice is to discover that there's really something wonderful, wonder inside of you, something very precious and valuable. And that as many things <clears throat> that qualify for that treasure inside of us. But one of the treasures that the tradition talks about is, uh, are the seven factors of awakening. <clears throat> These are seen as treasures. And in fact, they're really some of the, you know, you can, you can kind of fall asleep when you hear we're going to talk about a list of seven things. But um, uh, as a list, it's boring. But as uh, precious qualities that you have, faculties that you have, capacities that you can awaken and feel and sense and experience and be supported by and be awakened by is um, really a beautiful thing. And it's speaking to some of the best qualities of your own heart that you have. <clears throat> There's a story from the time of the Buddha when one of his uh, most senior disciples, a man named Mahakashapa, was ill. And the Buddha went to visit him as you do if you visit your friends who are sick. And then uh, in the evening, the, the Buddha approached Venerable Mahakasapa. He sat down and said to him, I hope you are bearing up, Kasapa. I hope you are getting better. I hope that your painful feelings are subsiding and not increasing. So he's caring for him. He's wishing the best, hoping the best for him. And Makasapa responds, <clears throat> Venerable Sir, I am not bearing up. I am not getting better. Strong, painful feelings are increasing in me, not subsiding. Now, Mahakasapa was one of the most senior, enlightened disciples of the Buddha. So, you, you know, so, <clears throat> you know, we don't know what was going on in his heart, in his mind. Maybe he wasn't suffering, but his body was suffering. And this is a very important distinction so we go along this, with this talk, this distinction between what goes on inside and what goes on you know, externally in a sense um, with our uh, you know, physical pain, for example. And it's very important to distinguish these two because perhaps it's possible to have uh, uncomfortable experiences in your life but have your inner life, uh, the treasure, still being there and available. So anyway, so this arhat, this enlightened man says, no, I'm not bearing up well with this. It's painful. Pains are increasing. So this is the Buddha's response, hearing that. He says to Makasapa, these seven factors of awakening, Kasapa, have been expounded by me. When developed and cultivated, they lead to knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. What seven? 
the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, the enlightenment factor of equanimity, the, uh, no, no, I'm sorry. Um, I'm just kind of skipping some of the, so the, it says the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. Oh, it's, it's, um, it, they've truncated it. So the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, the enlightenment factor of uh, joy, the enlightenment factor of tranquility, the enlightenment factor of concentration, and the enlightenment factor of equanimity. So what uh, the Buddha is doing here is reminding Makasapa about these qualities, these capacities that he's familiar with from his practice. And um, I did this once, I visited someone in the hospital who had been a lot, done a lot of retreats. And I was pretty confident that she was very familiar with these. I didn't just list them like the way it's listed here, but I, I led her in a guided meditation of tapping into, touching into uh, her experience, uh, her memory, her experience of these evoking these for her as she was laying there in the hospital bed. And um, <clears throat> so when the Buddha went through these with Mahakasapa and, um, and in reply, Kasapa said, Surely, blessed one, they are factors of enlightenment. Surely, they are factors of enlightenment. This is what the blessed one said. Elated, the venerable Mahakasapa delighted in the blessed one's statement. And the venerable Kasapa recovered from that illness. In such a way, the Venerable Mahakasapa was cured of his illness. Is it a fairy tale? Is it a true story? Um, I, you know, it's, I don't know, was it, I don't know if it was an instant cure, but I know that these seven factors of awakening, when they're strong and coursing through us, feel very healing to have them there. It's kind of like everything is aligned or, harm, or, harm, or, or in harmony in our system and things are going all going well. It's very healing feeling to them. And then uh, the text goes on, and, um, and then it kind of has almost the same text uh, with uh, the Buddha being sick. So the Buddha got sick. Isn't it nice to know the Buddha got sick? On that occasion, the Blessed One was sick, afflicted, and gravely ill. So if you, ever, if you get sick, or if you are sick, you have good company. Um, and then there was a monk named Mahakunda uh, approached the Blessed One, sat down to one side. Then the Blessed One said to the Venerable Mahakunda, recite the factors of enlightenment, Kunda. And then uh, Mahakunda did the same thing. He went through them, the seven factors of awakening. And the Buddha said, exclaimed, surely they are the factors of enlightenment. Surely they are the factors of enlightenment. This is what the Venerable Mahakunda said, the teacher approved, and the Blessed One recovered from that illness. So not only are the factors of enlightenment factors which conduce towards awakening, to enlightenment, or come with awakening, but they have other functions as well, they're healing. That which is beautiful, the gold that we have inside of us, is beneficial in many different ways. So, um, these factors of awakening are um, 
capacities, qualities that I would suggest are always here in some degree, but maybe the degree is very small. And uh, when they're small, the degree that where they're present, they're often overlooked and not recognized and not seen. And part of uh, what's valuable in practice is to begin recognizing that which is valuable, but under-recognized. Because of the recognition of things is what makes them stronger. So a little bit kind of what, uh, in a similar way that uh, Adrian talked about them yesterday, a different kind of an example. Um, The example of um, um, if you take a, um, if you have a greenhouse and you keep it uh, hot and damp and um, hot and dark, then the plants inside don't grow, but the mold does. And the plants kind of wither up or don't do well, and the place gets moldy. But if you let the light in, then the plants can grow and the mold doesn't grow as much. So if you let these seven factors in, if we let mindfulness in, investigation in, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity in, that's the sunlight. Then the good qualities inside of us have a chance to grow. They themselves have a chance to grow. And when, um, when we don't have the light of awareness present and we're checked out or we're absorbed in, the text keeps talking about the five hindrances, absorbed in desire or absorbed in ill will or sloth and torpor or restlessness and doubt, that that's kind of like having darkness. And then other things grow in the dark, so mold can grow. And so we're trying to bring up the light in us so that what's best in us can grow and develop. And what's not needed, the sickness, the spiritual sicknesses we have can diminish. In this regard, um, I think it's useful to distinguish between two things in in our experience. Uh, there is what we do and what we recognize. There's what we do and what we allow for. And some things we have to do in our lives, and sometimes uh, we don't, it's best not to do them or make them happen, but it's best to allow them to happen. So uh, one example maybe is... Um, if you want to taste strawberry or chocolate, right? Was the eighth factor of awakening? Someone said, um, "If you, you know, you have to, you have to do your thing to it. You have to do certainly my work that you have to do. You have to unwrap the chocolate and put it in your mouth, and, um, and maybe chew it. But you don't do the tasting. You don't do the taste. The taste kind of explodes in your mouth, and you have to be present for it. That's your doing." But the tasting happens and you allow for it, you recognize it as it's happening. And if you're in conversation with a friend, very passionate or argument or something, and you're trying to eat your chocolate and make your point at the same time, uh, you probably won't appreciate and enjoy the chocolate as much as if you, uh, you know, you stop your argument (laughs) and just kind of take a moment to really savor or take in what's happening to you. So, Hopefully that example is a little bit, such, uh, points to the difference between we have to do something, some things we do, and some things we allow for. And the factors of awakening, uh, having them be part of our lives involves both things. The practice that we're doing here, mindfulness involves both things. There's things that we do 
but there's also what we allow for, the recognition of something to happen within us. And this distinction is very important because people will often err on one side or the other. And one of the common ways of erring, in a sense, especially in the first days of a retreat, is to take too much responsibility for the doing and, um, and be too much involved in doing and measuring. It's up to me, I have to do something, and uh, I have to somehow whack down this brain of mine, his mind, and not think so much, and, and I have to really bear down and try to get concentrated and focused, and it's up to me to do something. And if there's too much me, too much selfing, too much control, too much expectation, too much demand about what's going to happen, it interferes with uh, a variety of things, but certainly with the deepening of the practice. But it also interferes with our ability to recognize what's here and be supported by what's here already. And so there's a whole other side of practices which would begin to recognize and relax and to allow and to open up to what's here. And one of the remarkable things about awareness is that you can be aware without trying to be aware. In fact, sometimes the less you try, the better you can be aware. So one of the great exercises, I love it, when I do it for myself, is um, to have the instructions, uh, stop being aware. Just stop it. <laughs> Come on, you guys, cut it out. And, uh, you know, after a whole day of trying to be aware and find some relief, right, to hear someone telling you, stop it. <laughs> But you try, you know, and in trying to stop being aware, you probably can't. Awareness kind of just happens. And, uh, but that aware, the happening of awareness happens best if you relax and if you allow. And so rather than trying so, much, so hard, sometimes it's much more conducive to practice to allow hard, to, uh, to be diligent, vigilant, to relax, vigilantly relaxing. Isn't that great? And uh, then you can't get tense about being, about being vigilant. But you want to be you know, persistent in staying relaxed and open and allowing, letting go of thinking, letting go of past and future, and relaxing and opening up to what's here, as if what's here is trustable, as if what's here is going to open for you. It's the, it's certain, something, something can happen when we allow for something here. The factors of awakening belong more to what we allow to surface than they do what we do. They're more like states that we abide in than things that we do. The language for the factors of awakening, like for mindfulness, is nowhere in the, in the text, in time of the Buddha, uh, is mindfulness associated directly with verbs having to do with doing. You should do something. It's, it's closer to what in English we would say verbs of being. So we're, uh, uh, we're established in mindfulness. We're endowed in mindfulness. We abide in mindfulness, is the language of the, of the, of the Buddha. Uh, he doesn't say be mindful in the way like we use, like be mindful of your breath. Nowhere does he say be mindful of your breath. He says, uh, he says um, be attentive to your breath or be present for the breath, or investigate what's going on. But that's a different, little different practice. The word mindfulness itself, sati, is used more in the sense of opening to or allowing some capacity, a quality, a natural capacity we have to be there and to evoke and to be present. 
So this is a way of saying that um, uh, mindfulness has a lot to do not with what you uh, direct, it's not, it's not a doing thing, but it's an allowing to, it's a recognizing thing. So as you go about your day, can you recognize the times when you're, are, your awareness is present for what's going on in such a way that um, you, know, you know that you know, you know that you're present. And can you take uh, support, can take nourishment, medicine, from your capacity to know, to be present for what's going on, to have a presence of mind with what you're doing, uh, whatever you're doing, when you're at the, at the table, at the mealtime, serving yourselves, to serve yourselves not by your concerns about whether it's enough or whether you're going to like this or what should I have and all your thoughts in negoti- negotiating that table, but to abide more in the presence, presence of mind, presence of attention that can be there with the food and with yourself. The sense of presence and to appreciate that and to recognize what a great thing it is to be present. When um, some years ago, I noticed that I gravitated towards old photographs. The older the photographs, uh, the better, as long as there was a person in it. And uh, because of the really old photographs, the person, it was best if the person was long dead. For, you know, that, that's, uh, I was you know, pulled towards it. And I studied the photographs really closely. And, um, and then, uh, particularly, I look at the faces of people. In particular, I looked at their eyes. And to, and to my surprise, even sometimes 120-year-old photographs, you can sometimes see um, you know, expressions in people's faces, and you can see expressions in their eyes. And sometimes you saw these people in the old days be quite weary and exhausted. Sometimes you saw a smile or some sense of mischief or a variety of things you can see. And every once in a while I'd see a photograph a long time ago, and you see the spark in their eyes, like, like a sparkle. You could see this kind of wonderful sense of life and sparkle. And, um, and eventually I realized the reason I liked looking at these photographs was that it was a recognition that that photograph was taken uh, in this very special time that that person had to be conscious, to be alive, to be here. And that person is no longer here, but that person had his or her time. And this is my time. Now is your time for this wonderful thing, to be conscious, to be awake, to be present, um, to be aware. It's a beautiful thing to be aware. It's an amazing thing that we should have this capacity to be aware and to know that we know. And how easy it is to lose touch with it. That's pretty wondrous. That some of this amazing thing, your spark, the vast amount of time before you were born and the vast amount of time after you're gonna die you have this little window. It's your time. This is your time to be aware. It's your time for the spark of consciousness to be here and be present. And to know it, to feel it and sense it, and not be swept away, swept into uh, the, all the ruminations and, and um, byways and highways of our thinking mind and our concerns and our fears and our desires and our pasts and our futures and our fantasies and Uh, all the ways in which we're trying to negotiate our lives sitting here. It's quite remarkable if you paid attention to what you think about 
if you really tracked what you're thinking about and kept inventory, um, you'd, uh, it, you'd probably be surprised how much of it has to do with yourself. It's kind of a little bit humbling. Um, you know, and just kind of this pull of selfing, the pull of defining ourselves and being someone and being someone in relation to other people is so strong that we get lost, swept into this, the gravitational force of these kinds of thoughts and concerns. And in that, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but there is a loss in that it's easy to lose touch with the presence, the awareness that's here. If we can be aware, we can relax and allow for awareness and then relax into that awareness even more. Allow for it to operate. There's a lot here to be said about letting go. Letting go of things that keep you from noticing how aware you are, how present you are already. It's not something you have to do, but something we allow for. And one of the things that will get in the way of this is this very strong um, idea that you have to do a lot of things. It's up to you, you have to fix, you have to correct, you have to defend, you have to um, you know, brace yourself against life and do things. But in fact, um, maybe you don't have to do so much. Maybe you, uh, trust what happens, trust what happens if you relax and let go and open up. So then we come to mindfulness, the first factor of awakening. And there's another story that, that the Buddha told about mindfulness. It's kind of a parable. He said that in, you know, in his part of the world, in ancient northern India, he said, there are places up in the mountains, steep, steep, steep cliffs and crags, where monkeys cannot live because it's just too wild or dangerous for them, too steep. Then you come down mountains and there's an area of the mountains where there's, um, it, it's not so steep, it's safe for the monkeys, but it's not safe for the, hunt, for the hunters. And so there the monkeys are safe. And then, uh, but if the monkeys come out of that part of the mountains and down to the plains where people live, it's not safe for them, and they're monkey hunters, and the sooner or later they'll maybe catch some of those monkeys. But if they stay in their home territory, or uh, what he called it was the ancestral territory, in that in-between place where humans can't go but monkeys can still be, the monkeys will be safe. In the same way, the Buddha said, when he, uh, when he talked to practitioners like you, um, he said, stay in your ancestral territory. Stay in your ancestral homes. Don't go down to the places where it's dangerous and you get caught. And don't go to the places where it's too dangerous to be because it's too steep and wild. So, so then, and what is your ancestral home? What's your, what's your home? It's a beautiful idea. It's your ancestral home, your true home, your essential home, your ancient home for you. He said, it's the four foundations of mindfulness. Abiding in mindfulness of the body and the body, ardent, fully aware and mindful, putting away covetousness and distress for the world. 
abiding, observing feelings and feelings, ardent, fully aware, mindful, putting away covetousness and distress for the world. Abiding, maybe this is the word is abiding, it's not doing. Abiding in mindfulness of, um, of mental states, the qualities of the mind in and of themselves. Ardent, fully aware, mindful, putting away covetousness and distress for the world. And then abiding, contemplating or observing uh, the dharmas, the truth, the spiritual truths that are valuable for liberation, liberative truths that are um, uh, ardent, fully aware, mindful, putting away covetousness and distress for the world. So, you know, the idea that being paying attention to, being present for these immediate parts of your experience, that that's your home, your ancestral home. That's where you're safe. If you stay close in to your home, uh, you won't get caught. And the hunters won't catch you. Now, who are the hunters now in this example? Who's hunting you? I guess it's you're hunting yourself. Your thoughts and your ideas and desires and aversions and clingings and fears and things that really grab us. And in grabbing us, we lose touch with ourselves. And what the Buddha is suggesting here, stay in touch with yourself. When you're in touch with yourself, you're home. There's a home to be found here. It's not a home to be found in a physical house. There's a home to be found here. And I I love it, this idea here, here's the home. I know it can be hard on the first day of retreat to want to have here in your body to be home. Body aches, some of you have headaches probably. Um, All kinds of first day syndromes that go on. But here. Part of this expression is putting aside Covetousness, covetousness and distress or aversion to the, to the world. It's a very important expression in this, that in order to abide in this mindfulness, there has to be the understanding that we're not supposed to be abiding someplace else. We're not supposed to be abiding in greed and desire, and we're not supposed to be abiding in ill will and distress. Do you have a choice about that? Where you abide? Where do you take up residency? And I think many times we take up residency in our thoughts and our desires, our aversions, our fears. We give them tremendous amount of authority. And one of the interesting questions is to ask yourself, how much authority do you give your thoughts? How much authority do you give to your feelings? How much authority do you give to your desires and aversions? Do you give any authority to them? Or how much glue do you have in your attachment to them and your involvement to them? There's one thing, it's one thing about what happens to you. It's another thing how you relate to it. And a very important part of this mindfulness practice is to realize that if you're full of desire for something and you're fixating on that, chances are you're not at home in yourself. 
So if I give you an example, uh, this is a beautiful striker, wonderful striker. It's big and nice. And at home, I only have a small one. So I would like to have it really you know, make nice sound, and, you know. So, so I think I really want this striker. So I'm not going to let John have it. So I'm going to hold it over here and hold it really tight because I'm sure John covets it as well. So I'm going to really hold it tight. And so I could be so concerned about not losing the striker. It's mine, at least for this next hour. This hour is mine because I have this dharma seat and I'm going to stay here and not let anybody have the striker. And, um, and I could be so concerned with holding on to the striker that, uh, and how important it is for me that I don't notice that my uh, fist, my hand is going white and how painful it is to hold it so tight. But if I come home to my body to feel, feel what's going on, stop focusing, fixating on the striker, but focusing on here in the home base, then I can feel, wow, this really hurts to hold it so much. This doesn't feel good. And that's a, to see that is a protection. To see that gives me a choice. When I see that, then I can say, well, I don't know if I want to hold it so tight. There's, what, what, there's, you know, there's what, what's happening and how I relate to it. There's a thing that I'm focusing on, how I'm holding it. I can hold it lightly, or I can hold it with tight grip. How are you holding your thoughts and your concerns? Do you hold them tightly? Is there a lot of force and power behind them? Uh, or do you, uh, do you hold them tightly or do you hold them lightly? How is it? And it's difficult to kind of just choose how to hold your thoughts and your concerns, but it's fascinating to study, to pay attention to the amount of glue that exists between you and your thoughts. Sometimes you'll see that it's like really soft glue, it's like water soluble, and sometimes it's super glue. And you know, it's really sticky, it's hard to get, get apart. But what happens when you start noticing the glue more than the thought itself, the concern itself. And what happens if you step back behind it and look at what's going on in the, this place that the Buddha called home, here in the body? What does it teach you? What does it show you? It can show you the cost, the cost of what you're doing. It can show you another way to find your way with it. So when the Buddha talked about uh, mindfulness of the body, he began with focusing on breathing being mindful of your of the breathing, pay attention to the breathing, noticing your breath. And, um, the, um, and once you kind of notice your breathing, you're starting to come home. You're starting to have an anchor to hear, to being present, developing concentration. Every time your mind wanders off the breath, the task is to bring it back, partly for, for a number of reasons. One is to begin to uh, loosen, lighten up, loosen up, the tremendous force, gravity, or uh, glue that keeps us caught in the world of our thinking. And it can be very frustrating to 10,000 times to notice your mind wander off and 10,000 times bring it back. But actually that's how it works, is that each time you bring it back, it's like ever so slightly, incrementally, the, the glue is loosening, it's loosening. And slowly, 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 it loosens enough that you're not pulled into that world so much. And then at the same time, come back to your breathing. The breath begins becoming a refuge, a home, a place to uh, abide in, a place to be rooted or anchored in, so that you really start feeling that you're grounded there. 
um, more so eventually than you're grounded in your thoughts and concerns. It begins shifting away from what you're thinking about to being here in this place. But then when it, so it begins by just noticing your breath, noticing how it is, coming back to it, coming back to it. But then the Buddha said this very important thing, and that is that as you feel your breathing, relax. Tranquilize, uh, 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 tranquilize your body, the bodily formations. Tranquilize the way that your body is um, activated by your thoughts. Our body has a lot of activity that's connected to how we use our mind, what we're thinking about. So if, we're, um, if you're anxious, then your belly might be tight or your shoulders might be tight. If you're angry, maybe your jaws are tight or your heat in your belly or someplace. Uh, or if you're really trying too hard in meditation, you really need to get someplace, you can kind of tighten up all the muscles in your face and your eyes can kind of get really tight from straining, trying to see what's going on. If you think a lot, caught up in the world of thinking, sometimes people have uh, you know, furrow in their eyebrow area, their forehead from all that thinking we do. That um, there's a lot that we carry in our body. And so the body sa- Buddha says that, that which has been activated in your body by how you think and how you've been actively involved in your life, relax it, soften. So, and this is very important around thinking because to let go of your thoughts and do nothing else keeps in place the tension, the pressure to think again. And if you could uh, 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 notice that you're thinking, but then look around a little bit wider beyond your thinking and notice if there's any pressure, any tension, any strain, any place in your body that's been activated and aroused by all that thinking. And then uh, rather than just letting go of your thoughts, before you let go of it, you're thinking, uh, see if you can relax the thinking muscle. See if you can soften that place in your body that's been activated by how you think. When I, uh, when I first started noticing the connection between my body and my thinking was on a retreat in Thailand. And uh, we had to walk down, walk kind of across the, the monastery to place we had lunch, the one big meal of the day. So it was pretty important. And I noticed that I would start think, having lunch thoughts on that walk. And I would be ahead of myself. I mean, my center of gravity was like two feet ahead of me. My body was leaning forward because I was being, my, my thoughts were kind of pulling me or propelling me forward. And sometimes you can feel that in meditating here, depending on what kind of thoughts you have. You can feel sometimes yourself leaning forward or sometimes pulling back or sometimes sitting up straight or sometimes giving up that there's this very subtle movements can happen. For me, when I'm thinking a lot in meditation and I look around, I find like there's, there's pressure or tension in my forehead and inside the skull, kind of behind my forehead. And um, I call it the thinking muscle. And if that thinking muscle doesn't uh, stay pumped up, it's gonna pump out more thoughts. So before I let go of thoughts <clears throat> by thinking, I'll try to see if I can relax and soften the thinking muscle to relax. And then, I, and then I let go of my thoughts or then they let go of themselves. And I find that a much more useful way of letting go because thoughts are really just symptoms 
of deeper things going on inside of us. And so you don't want to you know, get too much, give too much credit or to focus too much or to be too bothered by your thoughts. Because then if you're bothered by your thinking, it's just more thinking. But if you can just uh, be okay with them, but kind of, if you can let go of them easily, great. But if you can't let go of them easily, see if there's some kind of way in which some physical aspects of your body that have been activated. And see if you can relax and soften. Relaxation, softening, is such a big important part of what we do here. Without, because in that softening and and, uh, softening, relaxing, then it's easier to allow and to recognize the factors of awakening. It's easier to allow and recognize the awareness that's here all the time. The awareness that we don't have to do something to be aware. So the Buddha talked about the four uh, foundations of mindfulness, or the four ways of establishing mindfulness, four ways of recognizing mindfulness. And they follow a very interesting pattern, which if I describe that pattern or these four, uh, perhaps it'll be interesting for you as you explore yourself in the course of this retreat. So the first one is um, being mindful of the body and the body. So be grounded in the body, be connected to your body, the expression mindfulness, mindful of the body and the body is usually understood to mean that we don't add anything to the attention to the body, the presence we have for what's going on in the body. If we, uh, we don't add a judgment to it, we don't build up a sense of self around it, we don't have expectations around it, um, we just let it be simple. And so one of the simple things that some people in this kind of retreat find helpful is when there's pain, to let the pain just be pain instead of it being my pain. And it's fairly common for people, when they, when they add, they have the idea it's my pain, it hurts more. But if it's the pain, it's just, we're not so entangled with it, identified with it, and sometimes it can be easier. So if you have the occasion to be sitting here with pain, you might try it and see if you can switch how you relate to it from, the, from my pain to the pain. Because the pain is more like just experiencing the body and the body as in and of itself. My pain, you're adding an extra layer on top of it. Or there's all this meaning you can add to it. If I sit here, uh, you know, any longer with this sensation, then this means that I'm on the verge of Buddhahood. And, you know, you're feeling just tingly and warm. To experience the body and the body, just feel a tingling and warmth. And just leave it at that. You don't have to make meaning to it. Oh, this means that this is great. So the idea is to keep coming back, also be very simple with the mindfulness. How simple can you be with the mindfulness? Just recognize it, things as they appear. There's no need to interpret or build up a story around them. So coming back to the body, the first home we have. Get grounded. We use the body to ground ourselves in the present moment. The body is always in the present moment. The body is always in the present moment. Your mind might not be. And if your mind is not in the pre- if your mind and body are in two places at two different are two different times and places, guess what you can do to bring them into harmony. You're not really going to take your body there, but you can bring your mind here. So to bring your mind and body into harmony is a big part of what we're trying to do then. 
here. Have your mind body working together in the same time in the same place. So they support each other, they're with each other. And if you're thinking about what happened at work last week or thinking about what's gonna happen next week after the retreat, then your mind is someplace else. And the, and the body and mind can't cooperate, they can't be together. So to come back here so they work together. So come back to the body, be here in the body. As we start connecting to the body, then uh, the body is the, the location for how we feel our way through the world, whether things are pleasant or unpleasant, whether we like them or not. It's, you know, the more direct experience of what's here going on. So if you have pain, it's painful, it's unpleasant. If there's nice warm tingling, it's pleasant. That world of pleasant and unpleasant, the, the raw feeling sensations we have, belong to this present moment. It's one of the reasons some people don't want to be in the present moment because the feelings they have are, so many of them are unpleasant. And so they want to avoid them, they want to go someplace else. Which is unfortunate because this is the place where healing can happen. This is a place where you can open up to a new way. <clears throat> but the second foundation of mindfulness, it isn't so much the feeling tone, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral are what's important here. But there's a distinction that the Buddha makes <clears throat> in this, this foundation, which um, I think doesn't really get recognized so much. He says that there's, um, uh, there's two categories, two kinds of feelings, of these Vedana, these pleasant, unpleasant, neutral things. There is uh, that which, uh, he uses a word which is kind of funny to translate directly into English. Probably the best English translation <clears throat> is carnal feelings and non-carnal feelings. Or, uh, or, you know, or even more literal, um, feelings of the flesh and feelings of not of the flesh. Some translators will translate them as worldly feelings and spiritual feelings. I like to translate it as, uh, or uh, as render it as outer feelings and inner feelings. And what I mean by that, outer feelings are the feelings we can experience and say they come from the sensations when our external senses are in contact with the world. So if you taste something, the chocolate, that's pleasant and that's pleasure of the flesh. It's just this kind of, this kind of sensual pleasure of the senses being stimulated. If you see a beautiful sight, that's a pleasant seeing because the, the eye senses have been stimulated. If you're sitting here and the med meditating, your butt hurts. It's amazing how hard these afus can get if you sit on them long enough. And, um, and so you sit there, you know, it's just hard. And you, that's unpleasant, but that's part of this outer world of sense world. The inner world, um, you know, is the world of the heart or the inner experience, the inner life that we have. The inner life also has a feeling tone. Our inner quality of how we are can be pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So I could begin holding on to the striker and, um, and you know, if I hold it on really uh, tight, it can be, uh, I can feel the pain in my hand, which is the, kind of the carnal sensation but it's my greed or my fear that John's gonna take it. That belongs to the inner world. And that inner world is contracted. That inner world is afraid and that fear is a contracted, unpleasant sensation. 
I can be holding this. It's a very, very nice. This striker has a very soft, shiny, uh, smooth kind of handle here. I can touch it. I can, you know, and I could kind of really get into being soothed by it and feeling it. And that feels nice. It's pleasant. But my inner life may be racked with loneliness or racked with despair or meaninglessness. And somehow I'm trying to soothe myself by the external world being soothed. There's a difference between the sensory world and how that's stimulated and what goes on there and what goes on in the heart uh, or in the mind, this inner world. And so in the second foundation of mindfulness is, um, is beginning to recognize this inner world that we have as well and what it's like, the quality of it. And part of the value now of the first foundation is to be here in the body so you can be present. And so you're present, you can start noticing more deeply what's going on. And more deeply you have a chance to discover what goes on with your inner life. And trust that whatever you discover, it's, it's good to be present for it. If what's inside is not easy to be with, this is, a, this is a safe place to be in your body. Use your body as an anchor. Use your body as a protection. And to be there and hold it kindly and gently and with compassion. This then opens up to the third foundation of mindfulness, which is called uh, mindfulness of mind states, citta, or it could be translated as mindfulness of the heart. And this is the general quality of the state of the mind or state of the heart we have. And there's a number of things I can say about this, how it's described. But the simple thing is that um, to notice sometimes the heart or the mind, the inner life is contracted. We're contracted inside, we're constricted. And sometimes it's expansive and open. Part of when you start staying present for your experience and start noticing the quality of the inner life, you can start noticing that sometimes it's tight, small, dark, and sometimes it's open, light, expansive. It's interesting to watch um, how this shifts. You can be sitting here kind of present, relaxed, focused, um, calm on the inside, and then for no, you know, you know, for no reason at all, or perhaps because the door closed a little bit harder than it should and remind you of a door that closed at your high school prom. And now you're thinking about your high school prom date or that you didn't have a date. I didn't have a date. And so, um, and it's, oh, well, you know, oh, no. And suddenly, you know, you know, uh, I'm swept up in this whole drama about high school. And if I now look at the quality of my mind, what's going on compared to before when I was calm, the inner life was open, relaxed, kind of light before, and now it's dark. I got kind of involved in, you know, my date, you know, what she did or he did or this or that. And, and, uh, and you can feel the quality of the inner life shift and change. And it's very interesting to watch the shifting and changing quality of the inner life. And part of what we're asked to do in this third foundation of mindfulness is to see that contrast, that difference. What goes on with your inner life, your heart, what what I call the inner life? 
is there a sense of expansive expansiveness, openness in the mind, in the awareness, in the heart, whatever you want to call it? <coughs> or is it you feel closed or constricted, small? Do you feel in touch with your inner life? Or are you numb in that inner life? How are you with it? Is there an inner life, inner sense of something there? And that leads us to the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness is the foundation where we start noticing and learning um, uh, uh, what is it that causes, what is it were the conditions that allows for the heart to be contracted and constricted, to be caught, and what allows the heart to be open and expansive. And this is a learning. We have to, it's not just a matter of being present for our experience, but it's also a matter of understanding how this stuff works, how our inner life works, how we get attached, and, the, and the, what happens when we get attached and caught and cling to things. What happens when we let go and relax? How are we with our experience? What goes on? So if we're sitting here, meditating, and you have a really good sexual fantasy, what happens to you? Does, do you close down? Do you get dark? Do you lose touch with yourself? What, you know, and it's really interesting to have some, like good fantasy, not to be sexual, but a good fantasy that might be pleasant initially, but after 32 hours of it, you start realizing how exhausting and tiring and draining and unpleasant it is. It doesn't really, it doesn't really open the heart. It doesn't really create the expansive quality of freedom for us, even though it initially was kind of, had a certain kind of pleasant quality to it. So to see that if I start down the track of thinking about what I hate, that's going to create conditions which close down this inner life block it, resist it. If I go down the track of focusing on mindfulness of the body, if I go down the track of, of noticing the seven factors of awakening, that creates a condition, different conditions for what happens to the inner life. The inner life, I think Adrian yesterday talked about uh, nourishment. The inner life gets nourished and how it, what it gets fed on, what it feeds on, affects the quality of the inner life. And if the inner life feeds on desire, sensual desire or covetiveness or greed, if it feeds on ill will, if that's what you're feeding it, that's what you're giving it by thinking a lot those kinds of thoughts. If it's feeding on doubt, because you keep going along with doubt thoughts, that has an effect on this inner life. If it's feeding instead on, the, on noticing clinging and letting go of it, Noticing actually turning towards your inner experience, noticing how it is in your body, being present for your experience, being present for it rather than being caught in it. That has a different effect. So the first foundation of mindfulness, the first, foundation, uh, the first um, factor of awakening is mindfulness. And the factor of awakening of mindfulness is something we abide in something we're established in, something we allow for. And how do we allow for it? How do we develop this? We develop it by staying grounded in our body. 
we develop it by taking interest <clears throat> in what's here, what's going on for us. We develop it by relaxing, softening the places of tension holding, incrementally, slowly over time. I, I like the expression softening because then you don't have to relax. Just kind of softening around it. Because sometimes relaxing is hard to do. And then we start noticing, and then we just start noticing more and more what's actually going on here for us in the present moment. You'll probably find that as you do this, that you'll naturally become more present. There'll be a sense of presence here for you. A presence that maybe is a little bit akin to a kind of stillness, kind of akin to kind of aliveness. A sense of presence and aliveness, which is bigger than the discomfort you're feeling, bigger than the challenges you have bigger than the circumstance you find yourself in. Because the home, your ancestral home here of mindfulness is something that you can carry with you everywhere and it's bigger than anything that happens to you. And to be in that bigness, to be in that large sense of self that can hold it all is much better than being the small sense of preoccupation and concern that we kind of bounce off around inside of. So to be present, be grounded in your body, relax, start noticing aspects of the inner life and the outer life that you experience in your body. Start noticing the quality of whether your attention and presence is expansive or contracted. And to start noticing what affects that expansiveness and contractedness. Notice that how it is to cling, what you cling to, what you're preoccupied with. And is it possible to begin softening there, letting go, not holding on so tight, coming back and feeling and being here over and over again? 10,000 times, 100,000 times, coming back and being here so you can be home. And slowly, the plaster will come off. And the gold Buddha, that's you, will shine forth. So it's the custom here <clears throat> to end the sitting sometimes with uh, just a few, few seconds of sitting and meditating again as a way of gathering ourselves together for the talk. And so we take a couple of moments here. Settle back in.
So beyond your thoughts and your concerns. If you relax, open and allow. And you allow for awareness, a sense of presence, openness, and openness to experience, and openness to this life. Beyond thoughts and concerns, between your thoughts and concerns, below your thoughts and concerns, here, at home, here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.